1: Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the new podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What Do You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. We spoke with Sam Abu samid Navigant Senior Research Analyst, about the future of autonomous driving Sam discussed how the technology industry and the auto industry are coming together.
2: I think it's actually a bit of both, commercializing faster and, and getting up to scale. Over the last several years, uh, SoftBank has make, been making a, a whole flurry of investments into mobility into the mobility service segment. They've got investments uh, most recently here in the U.S. with Uber. They put about $11 billion into them a few months back. Uh, also uh, in China with Didi Shusing, the, the predominant player there. Ola in India and, and numerous other companies around the world. But what they haven't had is a supplier of vehicles. Now, this gets them a, a connection into a manufacturer that can supply vehicles that can be fed into all of these various other services.
1: Sam, put a Cruise GM self driving car unit into context in terms of how it stacks up against other competitors in uh, the autonomy race how is it you know how are its business prospects versus say waymo which of course everyone knows about but obviously they don't have their own car manufacturing operation
2: yeah, so GM's been working on autonomous technology for a lot lo- a lot longer than pretty much anyone. You know, I mean, they they started talking about it back in at least as far back as the 1950s. But really, over the last decade, they've been working on it pretty aggressively and bringing in crews a couple of years ago to help with really getting productionizing their autonomous driving software. I think has, has helped them a lot. I had a chance to ride in uh, the vehicle around San Francisco back in early December, um, and their their technology, I would say, is pretty much as good as anyone's, you know, just, maybe just shy of Waymo's, uh, but as you say, they do have the manufacturing scale, and they've also got uh, some other capabilities, like they have a network of dealers that can be leveraged to provide service and maintenance operations for these mobility services.
3: You know, what's interesting in all of this, of course, is that we hear about what Tesla's doing, we hear about what Uber's been doing with self-driving vehicles, and I think people tend to forget that GM had been making quite a bit of progress here. SoftBank, of course, does have an investment in Uber. So where does this leave a company like Uber?
2: I think uh, for Uber in particular, um, you know, with the problems that they've had, you know, they've really struggled with their development of automated driving systems. And I think I wouldn't be at all surprised if, in the, the not too distant future, if they perhaps just phase out their own internal development program entirely and focus on working with OEMs like GM. They also have a deal that they struck last year with Daimler uh, to deploy some of Daimler's uh, autonomous Mercedes-Benz vehicles on the Uber platform, and you know their competitor Lyft has been doing the same thing, getting deals with various companies that are actually manufacturing the vehicles to deploy those vehicles on their platform. So I think it's going to. I think there, I would I wouldn't be surprised to see uber refocus on that part of it folk get the logistics platform uh, along with all the other things that they've been expanding that into into uber eats and uh, freight and, and other areas and working with these companies to get vehicles that can support all of those different applications
1: we saw Sam a pretty dramatic rally today in shares of GM on this news when you talk to people out there Do you think there is a lack of awareness at the degree of uh, that GM is basically one of the market leaders in this space?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's somewhat... Uh, somewhat a lack of awareness that the auto industry in general you know has really been working hard on this for quite a long time uh, you know all the attention obviously has been focused on Silicon Valley and there's right. a lot of great ideas that have come out of the valley um, but you know I think you know what the the manufacturers bring to the table is both the manufacturing capability but also the the knowledge and background with safety systems and being able to make uh, systems that are going to be robust and reliable in real use and now they're combining that I think the two sides silicon the technology industry and the auto industry are are starting to converge and come together and each bring their strengths to the table to collaborate to to really try to make these systems uh viable for uh for real world use with with humans
4: oh i'm glad you mentioned real world use sam how far away are we from having a scalable uh, commercial service and who's winning that war? And if we are several years away from that, is there still opportunity for other players to come involved here and and get in on the action?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know what what we're looking at right now is you know all the all the teams you know rushing into the first corner of the twenty four hours of Le Mans. Uh, <laughs> there's still a long way to go. Uh, you know to you know to as they say in racing to finish first. First you must finish, um, and so you know i think the the first players that we'll see commercializing the technology will probably be waymo uh they've they've promised to launch commercial service by the end of this year gm next year uh and then a whole slew of other companies over the next couple of years but in these first three, four years, what we're gonna see is very limited deployments in very specific locations. They're all gonna be geofenced to areas where the technology can work reliably, where we have high definition maps to support it and all the other infrastructure to support it. For the vast majority of people, they won't have access to autonomous vehicles for probably several more years at least. Um, and you know so there's still plenty of time for other players to get a slice of this market. You know, in the in the next four to five years we're we're looking at no more than you know tens of thousands to you know by by the early 20 you know by 22 23 time frame, we're looking you know maybe a, a couple of hundred thousand vehicles but it won't be till the mid 2020's that we start getting into millions of vehicles and there's lots of time for other companies to to get a part of that uh... pie right now
1: sam is uh, autonomous driving going to be a winner take all or winner take most type of industry or will it be like the auto industry itself right now where you have A lot of different players that make, uh, that are at commercial scale. I think it's going
2: to be more like the, the current auto industry where there will be a number of players. It will probably be fewer players than what we see today in the auto industry. There will be some consolid- some more consolidation. But I think that there won't be just a single player that, that wins it all. Um, you know, there's plenty of room for everybody. There, you know, there's a wide variety of services that are going to be needed. Um, and you know, companies with different expertise in, in different areas will, will all be able to uh,
1: profit from this business going forward. We also spoke with Mark Chandler, Brown Brothers Harriman Global Head of Currency Strategy. Mark discussed investor anxiety about Europe relating to the political situations in Italy and Spain.
5: Part of the uh, banking regulations, both in the U.S. and in Europe, seem to have discouraged banks from trading their own account, like the Volcker yes. Rule. And so maybe in other circumstances, people might have come in when the, uh, I think the Italian two-year yield moved by like something like 15 standard deviations, a huge move, like the sun should not be burning while well, this happens. <laughs> it happens anyways. Someone would have come in, I think, under in, in a different regulatory environment and maybe tried to buy those bonds. Who? Like we saw at the auctions today. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you've got a lot of different people who buy bonds at, at such a d- deep discount. For example, you've got a lot of fund managers who are who are, have to track. They get evaluated based on what well, they do relative to a benchmark. Sure. A lot of these passive investors who might have to buy Italian bonds because Italy is issuing more bonds. Mm. They buy more of the Italian bonds. When should they buy them? You just had this huge jump, I mean, in not only the for Italy, but also relative to, say, Spain or to Germany. And so there were some value investors, I think, in other times, especially the banks, could have come in.
1: So moves like yesterday, you said the sun shouldn't even be burning. So like they're supposed to happen like every once every 150,000 years or something. something
5: like that. But it's like the flash crash we yeah. saw with the sterling. We've seen this with Treasury bonds, that something happens where the markets can be acting uh, functioning normally and then at some level they just like break down and I think it breaks down partly because of the regulatory environment but not only because of the regulatory environment because there's a lot of shocks coming to the market.
1: Aside from the market structure or technical issues relating to Italy have people just gotten too complacent about this fact that populists keep winning in Europe and more and more there's this anxiety about the current system seems to be bubbling to the surface?
5: I don't know. I mean, they say populists keep winning in Europe, I think that Italy is the first time that the populists have won. Fair enough. Uh, but I do, I do agree with you that what happened uh, yesterday was the biggest, uh, biggest move since before the French had their vote last April. Right. right. Whether it's measuring the, uh, the risk, measuring how many people think that the uh, Eurozone might not survive. So I think that anxiety is running very high in any event.
3: And it's not just Italy, of course. Spain also has its own political issues as well. How did that kind of exacerbate the situation when it comes to I don't want to call Italy a peripheral European nation but yeah, the, the non-core European countries, the non-Germans and non-Frances. Yeah, well, the third-largest country is a periphery, and you're right in terms of behavior. You've got a real in, in terms problem terms in the area. How areas. investors behave. No, I, I agree with
1: you.
5: Exactly. I think, I think Italy, uh, Portugal, Spain—they're lumped together uh, partly not because of the size of the economies, but because of the macro situation. Yeah. And so I, I do think that uh, having s- the outcome in Spain is a lot different. They're going to have a vote of confidence on Friday. If the government collapses, they have to have new elections. Most likely winner, the largest party in Spain now, is a moderate, sort of investor-friendly. But in Italy, the, the likely outcome, the two biggest parties, at least right now, are not so market-friendly. But I suspect that what we're seeing now is just the beginnings
6: of a... Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
3: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
5: Division between the five-star movement, which is populist, but it's also more like a social democratic party, versus the Northern League, or the league as they call themselves now, which is nativist, uh, nationalistic. They are only party that's gone up in the polls since the March election. So they want to fight to get a new election. But the five-star movement seems willing to compromise. Right. For example, name a new finance minister. So now, for the first time, it's not just coalition, whole, whole coalition, but we got fractures in it. And that's going to give us a little bit of optimism going into the election, probably late July or early August.
4: That we could ultimately see some kind of center-right formation of a government. What does all this mean for the euro? Because we obviously saw the dollar rally. We've had all sorts of people predicting 1.15 by the, uh, the end of Q2 uh, in terms of euro-dollar. What do you think on this currency pair in particular at this moment?
5: Yeah, so we've averaged kind of long, <laughs> but what I find the most remarkable thing is if you look at the commitment of traders in the futures market, yes. they are still nearly record-long euros. Whether you look at the mm. net position, that's longs minus shorts, you look at the gross longs, the market has, despite the euro falling roughly 10.5 cents since the middle of February, the long euro positions haven't been shaken out yet.
4: So what are they short against?
5: Well, mostly the dollar, as far as we can tell, the, the futures market. Just, so there might be some crosses, but it's primarily people who think that the dollar couldn't rally during a Trump administration, <laughs> yeah. can't rally during, a, during because of the uh, twin deficits, mm. can't, can't uh, rally because of a trade war. Right. And so I think everybody's leaning the wrong way, and that's when we come soaring back.
1: Yes. The, uh, the Italy story has taken some of the spotlight off of Turkey, which had been the big anxiety for uh, markets for most of last week. Has Turkey done enough? It's, uh, the Lira's actually had a nice uh, run here, bouncing off the bottom here. Sure. Has they, have they done enough to starch the bleeding for now?
5: I suspect not, and I think the test is coming up uh, as early as next week. Because the central bank says they'll raise interest rates again if inflation gets worse. Well, given the sharp depreciation of the Lira, we've got to anticipate inflation is going to get worse. Right. So they're going to have to hike rates. And I, I, I think at some point, you know, I was around when the Irish raised interest rates to over 100% overnight rates, and then they devalued. And if you bought the currency because of such high overnight rates, you still lost when they uh-huh. devalued. Right. And so I think that at some point, central banks cannot raise interest rates enough to compensate you when you have a falling currency.
3: Such a great point. So it all kind of yeah. ends in tears, however you- I'm afraid so. Yeah, however it gets decided in the meantime.
1: And Paul McNamara, GAM Investment Director, joined us to discuss emerging markets, including Turkey. Paul told us that he sees both Russia and Colombia as opportunities in EM currencies.
7: It's not so much allowing them to repay in local currency as setting the rate. So it's so that it's protecting it's protecting the the firms mm-hmm. at the cost of the, at the cost of the government, to the taxpayer, um, from the, the losses incurred due to the, due to the weaker lira. But it's not going to stop the lira falling. Um, I mean, it's all very well hiking rates, and, and I think this is the third time they've done it in, in, uh, in recent months. But what they do is they hike rates, then they um, expand their credit guarantee scheme, which is a government scheme, which encourages banks to lend. So you're pumping more credit, it's more expensive, but you're pumping more credit into the economy, the external balance deteriorates, and things keep getting worse. And then, just, just to be extra helpful, um, uh, last week, uh, President Erdogan was in London, met with investors. Um, I mean, the, the lunch in particular, which Bloomberg organized, was a complete car crash from an investor point of view. Very helpful. Uh, There was the famous, well, you know, if you look around the world, you see high interest rates and high inflation go together. Therefore, high interest rates cause high inflation. And what we need to do is to cut interest rates. And so everybody came out of the meeting, came out of the lunch and sold all their Turkish exposure. <laughs> and we got uh, a... And, and and they were actually sending the central bank head and, um, and one of the economy ministers, Mr. Shimsek, to London next week to try. Damage it. control. Exactly. I mean, it's, how do
4: you damage control? Their president doesn't understand finance.
7: It's, uh, <laughs> it's a good question.
1: What would you have to see policy-wise, whether from the government or the central bank, to say these are the type of moves that signal the lira may be,
7: may be ready to stabilize? Actually tighten credit. Don't just raise the price of it, but ah. just just stop expanding. So quantity. Quantity, yeah. <laughs> bring the quantity of credit down. Uh, not quantitative tightening. Just bring the quantity right. of credit down. But that will have impact because I think we're already at the stage where, you know, Credit is very expensive in lira. If you've been borrowing in dollars, it's it's getting more expensive. So there's, there's, it's a difficult thing to do.
1: And is that a difficult policy to do
7: in the run-up to the election when Erdogan is so sensitive? Yes, and to also economy? when we're already beginning to see signs of distress. We're seeing debts restructured. We're seeing major corporations clearly in financial distress
4: the big question has been, you know, is this a Turkey-specific story, an Argentina-specific story, or is this an EM story broadly? And if you take a look at this chart, you can see the yellow line is the Argentine peso uh, falling 24 percent so far this year. It's normalized as of the end of last year. The blue line, there it goes. That's the Turkish lira way down. And then you can see that white line just kind of coasting along, and that's the MSCI Emerging Markets Currency Index. So um, is is this a broader issue or is it just really specific story it's
7: two things there's there's the arm- The specific stories in Argentina and Turkey, which are the two countries which are running big and expanding external deficits, but there's also the broader story of the U.S. dollar. I mean, it's always been the case. If the dollar rallies against the majors, the euro, the yen, on average, if the DXY, the Fed's uh, trade-weighted index goes up 1%, the dollar goes up 1.4% against EM currencies. And that's what's happened.
4: So are you prepared to go into either Argentina's or Turkey's uh, currency at this point?
7: Argentina we think looks interesting because Argentina to us looks fixable, the much lower level of price private sector credit, they can live with higher interest rates and, and start to bring things round. Turkey, we don't seem, see signs to do more than hike rates and then pretend that's, that's tightening credit.
3: Well, now that we've kind of compared the two, are there any lessons that Turkey can draw from Argentina, the way that Argentina has approached its currency crisis?
7: Not really. I mean, they're two very different countries. One's a commodity exporter, the other's a big commodity, and especially an oil importer. Uh, Their economic structures are very different. Uh, What they both have is trouble getting uh, the locals to trust the currency. They're, Mm -hmm. They're the two emerging markets where... Uh, people don't hold their deposits in the local currency, so they need to rebuild trust.
1: So when it comes to Turkey, I mean, obviously, what Erdogan's been saying about interest rates and questions about the uh, independence of the central bank, these are old stories by this point, right? I mean, this has been going on for years, some of this rhetoric, his belief that high uh, rates cause inflation. Is there, you know, there's been this idea that the election could bring stability, but from an economic or currency standpoint, can there be uh, stability under the current government?
7: I think they can because, I mean, the AKP has been in power for, for, for 13 odd years and things have been getting things, you know, we've had good periods there. But they need to get credit under control, which means, which is what they need to get the current account under control. So yes, they can, but I don't think they will. Mm.
3: You talked about the stronger dollar being another drag on emerging markets overall, emerging market currencies overall, separate from the Turkey and Argentina story. EM obviously suffered during the 2013 t- uh, taper tantrum. Yep. And you've made the point that this time is different from, from then. Why?
7: Never a fun argument to make. Uh, No, what's different is that in 2013, if you look at emerging markets, the broad complex, um, they were running a trade deficit. Take out China, they're running a trade deficit of $25, $30 billion a month. At the moment, that same group, even including Argentina, even including Turkey, are in balance. Emerging currencies are more systematically weak when you have external deficits, and you don't have the external deficits now.
3: Let me just jump in here with a headline. Uh, Moody's may cut Italy's rating. It's BAA2 credit rating. So this is a headline that just crossed. Italy's uh, BAA2 rating may be cut by Moody's.
1: Speaking of EM, right?
3: Yeah. Well, ooh,
1: I don't know, not quite yet.
4: <laughs> yeah.
7: just speaking w- of the lira.
4: Real, real quick, I'm just wondering, uh, do, are there any other currencies in the emerging markets where you're seeing opportunities right now?
7: Um, Russia, I think, is, a, is, is our big opportunity. When you see the oil price up here, mm. to a lesser extent, Colombia, the two big uh, oil exporters which have local currency debt. I mean, Venezuela is a Venezuela is Venezuela, but um, I think Russia and Colombia stand out because usually, given the strength we've seen in oil, we'd expect uh, much more response from those, and we haven't seen it this time.
1: And that's it for what you missed this week. Subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure to watch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.